Hello and welcome to the annual Laureate for Irish Fiction Lecture, the 2021 edition, which is part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Kevin Rafter and I'm Chair of the Arts Council. This is Sebastian Barry's final lecture as Laureate for Irish Fiction. I was thrilled in one of my first duties as Arts Council Chair to introduce his previous lecture at the Gate Theatre in Dublin. This time we're online, but our world is now slowly emerging from lockdown restrictions. So in the months ahead, we'll be able to embrace the arts, all the different art forms, once again in person. So please do visit our galleries and art centres, and when permitted, theatres and cinemas. Like myself, many of you will have gotten through lockdown with help from the work of artists and reading writers like Sebastian Barry. Ireland has a proud literary tradition, and the Arts Council supports three awards to recognise outstanding Irish writers. The Laureate de Nogue, our Children's Laureate, the Ireland's Chair of Poetry and the Laureate for Irish Fiction. In his three years as Laureate, Sebastian Barry has had a very busy agenda, but I'd like to call out his work in hospital and healthcare settings, with groups with experience of direct provision and homelessness, and more recently, despite the challenges of Covid, he hosted online book clubs with participating prisons. Sebastian has been an outstanding Laureate, living up to the Arts Council's commitment to increasing public access participation and engagement with the arts. As Chair of the Arts Council, I want to thank Sebastian for the drive and energy he has brought to the position. So now, with his final Laureate lecture, The Fog of Family, please welcome Sebastian Barry. The Fog of Family. Here is a first memory, or masquerading as one. It is at the bars of a cot, but not my own cot, it is in the old room of a hospital. I know where this hospital is, a Georgian building that still exists on Harcourt Street in Dublin. I remember tall windows and gloom and also that signature foggy bareness of childhood recollections. It may have been full of nameless medical clutter all the same. Indistinct, the fog blowing through everything. I am possibly one and a half years old. I must be walking in order for my sister to be able to push me down the front steps of our house, as she has innocently done, causing me to break my nose. Then it duly healed, and then she pushed me out a window. But it was the ground floor, and it merely served to break my nose again. My sister was not a murderer. She was a child consumed by a powerful emotion. For a year and a half, she had been the only child. Then the interloper arrived. The outcome was I began to speak through my nose, insofar as I was speaking. A surgeon attempted to rectify it, hence the hospital cot. I am staring at the door into the ward, willing my mother to come back to me. I have no idea how long I have been waiting, minutes or hours or days. I am standing on the mattress and holding onto the bars, and I am staring at the solid-looking dark space. The need in me for my mother to come is absolute. The door must be already open, but so positioned that a person entering will only be seen at the last moment in the frame. My eyes are so focused, the air is shifting and blurred as if with the smoke of a fire. In this memory, my mother never comes. I am willing her to appear, staring and staring. She never comes, she never comes, and then she did. My surgeon was working to clear the passageways of the nose, and he did, but inside things were still shattered out of place. 
The most signal consequence of this deviated septum is, it is I have been snoring like a walrus all my life. I knew nothing of that snoring version of myself till recently. Alas, there is an app for everything. Listening to a recording of what the app designates as epic snoring was not very Virgilian or Homeric. The person who lies at my side has had 35 years of it. How can you apologize for 35 years of concatenation? A voucher for Brown Thomas doesn't cut that mustard. I did not know the snorer in myself, the snoring husband, just as I am sure I do not really know the writer in myself or the child, that fictional story-bound child. But maybe all you need is a vague sense of yourself. When I was a child and older, my father's snoring echoed through our old house on Longford Terrace, making it seemed the eight-foot-thick walls tremble. We feared to wake that slumbering colossus. We used to creep up the stairs to bed, the heavy mahogany treads creaking. I have it all joined in my mind with box cello suites, one of two records he owned, which also used to reverberate through the house when it was being played on the gramophone. It was Pablo Casals as an old man, sawing, sawing his wife in two eternally with many an audible groan. I suspect he snored to beat the band. All in all, despite the snoring, my father's and not mine, I was having a happy childhood. A person can attempt to make an assessment of that, right or wrong, as he or she exits that demanding state of being. I loved my father. Even when I was a teenager, I relished his company in the mornings on the way into town to school in the Volkswagen hatchback, one of a dynastic series of such cars since infancy. I missed his company even as I enjoyed it. By the time I was in my early thirties, various family troubles had separated us permanently. I remember the first sand-coloured Vokes arriving second-hand, cheap maybe, but still coveted, pulling up to the pavement outside our flat on Leeson Park, where indeed my sister did the work on my nose. Though a sunlight so, through a sunlight so piercing, it was as good as a fog. Was I three? It must be a memory later than the hospital so, an even earlier memory than both of these, was me smearing the contents of my nappy on the wall behind my cot, to, to the distress of my sister who shared the room. Maybe she had a motive for murder after all, but which my mother interpreted as an early sign of artistic ability. Indeed, my grandfather, my father's father, who was a watercolorist of radiant ability, apprenticed me to him when I was about eleven. He hoped by doing so that I would continue on from him. Every Saturday I traipsed over to him after school. He always slept for an hour after lunch, so I would sit in his studio waiting for him, waiting for his tread on the stairs and the beginning of the miracle of watching him paint, his hands like miniature ballet dancers. A deep silence in the house, like a spaceship in space. The studio as composed as a painting with me, aged twelve, painted into it. Snoring. An activity we share, my father and I, the only one now separated as we have been for many years. Did my grandfather, Papa Barry, his father snore? I have no one to ask. 
I was only in his bedroom the once, and he was awake, if on the very cusp of his eternal sleep. In all that there was a serious mystery. My grandfather had fallen out with his own father in Cork in some way. Was it because some of his half-brothers donned a British uniform and fought in the First World War, or one of the full brothers? This great-grandfather, Patrick Barry, had two wives, not at the same time. There's a couple of brothers there I see in the census for 1911 older than him. One is a train engine degreaser, the other a lithographer. Maybe they went to fight. A train engine degreaser sounds like a useful person in a war. It must have been complicated because in the Cork records, there is Patrick Barry joining the Cork Brigade of the IRA in summer 1914 as the Great War actually broke out. He was 64, quite old for a revolutionary. The 1916 rising in Cork City was called off by Owen McNeill. Nevertheless, numbers in Cork managed to become besieged in the city hall by British soldiers, some of them native Irishmen, of course, and held out for a week. I don't know if my grandfather and his father even were among them. I like to think they were, except in another record. I see my grandfather was training in Dublin at the time as an art teacher, aged 23. Father and son together before the break, or father and son sundered in some way unknown, just like myself and my father. What was the trouble that parted them? I do wonder. Was it because he married Maud Dunn, the daughter of a, of a superintendent in the Dublin Metropolitan Police? He never said, and I don't know. Curiously enough, despite being a corkman, my grandfather was a fervent follower of de Valera, who was from Clare via New York, whereas Michael Collins was a real corkman. So I have to suppose he opposed the treaty of 1922 brokered by Collins in London and was on the irregular side in the Civil War to boot. But again, I don't know, because he never said, or I never asked, but that might have caused a rift too. Fogginess abounding, abundant. The fog of family, it swirls about. It's very thick in places. Glimpses only are granted that prompt novel, certainly. My grandfather won an imperial scholarship, ironically, to study painting at Goldsmiths in London, probably around the time that Michael Collins was working in the post office there. Were they both stirred by the news from home in their different London lairs? Did they know each other? Dislike each other? I would like to ask the ghost of Kitty Kernan, a friend of other ancestors on my mother's side, the Sheridans of Omart, if Colin snored. But maybe better to ask Lady Lavery. Everyone loved Collins, even the people that assassinated him. Maybe they most of all. He was only a young man, handsome as Valentino. When his fiancée, Kitty Kernan, her parents at that time already dead, was burned out of her hotel in Grenard during the War of Independence, she was rescued by old Mariah Sheridan, my grandmother's aunt, up there in Omert, County Cavan. It was the IRA burned Kitty out in reprisal for her allowing a young Dublin RIC policeman drink in her hotel bar. 
Collins was horrified. He was on the same side, of course, as the arsonists, but hadn't known about the reprisal, which is interesting in itself. Many of the rural commands were not linked to Dublin directly, for security maybe. Anyway, the Sheridans of Omerd were well-to-do Catholic landowners, strong farmers, and Kitty found refuge there in the old house that now stands in ruins, an unlucky building. They favoured priests, bank managers and the Catholic middle classes in general and had fishing parties in May when the Mayfly was up and tennis parties, all of which seems very surprising. You would have got a telegram from Mariah saying just that if you were a favoured guest. Mayfly up. The Catholic landed class and all its accoutrements and favoured activities entirely vanished away. And Collins himself visited her there and played tennis on the court under the great trees and no doubt ate heartily at Mariah's groaning country table. I never knew my grandmother, May Carwin, whose mother, like Mariah's mother, had been one of the five Gallican legatees, five girls who had been given dowries by a relative who had grown rich in Argentina but was childless. And the five girls married into rich farms in Cavan and brought their South American dowries with them, gold coins in bags, except May's mother, who married an insurance broker with a nice house in Galway. And then my grandfather, who married May, managed to bet away that house on the horses and indeed the bag of gold coins too, all unbeknownst, all unbeknownst to May. Ah, poor May, poor May. But I have tried to write about all that in the temporary gentleman. Oh, my heavens, continuing rolling masses of fog, masses. And where does it all leave me? This grandfather, Jack O'Hara, who married May, I shared a bed with this duly widowed man. May died in 1953 of liver cancer and alcoholism in the deep cold of those Irish win winters, the foghorn like a sounding wail out in the wild dark around Monkstown Pier. And in summer had my own bed in the same room, so I think I can state categorically he never snored, though to be honest he was inclined to stay awake deep into the small hours when I heard him rustling the racing paper as a defence against dreams. Real fog and family fog all swirling about. He'd read the form on horses all hours of the night and then tragically back the favourites anyway, which was never profitable. Maybe he did snore when I was too sunk in sleep to know. He told me everything about his life except the myriad bad things, which is fair enough. That was his highly effective smokescreen and would have worked even better if my mother had not specialised, usually in another part of the flat, in telling me all his secrets anyway in vivid detail. He disliked my father intensely, which puzzled and confounded me fiercely in that familial whisper. We all lived in the same few rooms. There was a lot of fierce whispering. I am old enough to call them my people, that old tribe I was born into. Stories on top of stories, built on top, memories on memories, like the ancient conquered cities in the Bible. And everywhere that fog creeping, which sometimes seems to complicate everything, to queer every pitch and stop every clock. 
Some of those fog-bound stories seem to loom nearer than the present with its pristine visions. And even if I know the shortcomings of all these people, the whole crew of them, I am old enough to know my own too, and I am honour-bound to judge them in the round, which is also very complicating. But whatever and whoever they really were, I will have become a writer as a consequence of them, even if I didn't know them properly, with clinical forensic eyes, even if I don't know them now, they will still have made me a writer. Not asking is a feature of much lost history, we may suppose. Time itself asks no questions. It marches bluntly, mutely on. Perhaps it has no questions, or none worth asking, or none anyone or anything would know the answers to. In the case of my painter-grandfather and his revolutionary exploits, I was too young to ask, really, being a very naive and peculiar young man when that grandfather died in 1974, not political myself and not very aware of such things or even interested, despite being in my second year at Trinity College, or because of that, the confusions of youth that felt like certainties, clarities. I had no idea it would be my life's work to dig into those secrets, those things unknown, half-seen, to peer through the fog for 45 years. In 1974, I hadn't seen my grandfather for some years, whom I loved so much when I was a boy, because at college I had grown my hair not just below the collar, but right down to my waist. And although I thought this was the proper look for the late 70s, he didn't. When he was said to be dying, I went to his house on Morehampton Terrace, in those days modest lower middle-class dwellings, stuffing my hair down into my shirt at the back so it would be hidden, and was let in by his second wife, Anna, once a nurse at Guinness's Brewery, a very kind, soft woman from Cavan, who was always anxious about the regularity of what she called movements. Have you had a movement today? And walked right through the inner spaces of childhood most valuable to me, the full remembered house starting with the big Bakelite bell at the front door, the hall with its rack of coats and its fancy barometer at which he used duly to glance at going out, even though the actual weather lay inches away, the self-painted panels of the doors of his best room with the sacred black porcelain sweet jar, the hubcap of a car on the wall in the gloom of the back corridor beyond that he had hung there in playful homage to the famous Van Eyck painting, the stairs with its sequence of stormy views of the Poolbeg lighthouse and the Great Bull Wall, and further up photographs of my father and my uncle as beautiful young men. Then the soapy smell from his bathroom, whose unsilvering mirror he had rescued with little flowers in oil paint. The plug on the bath, a substantial machine of someone's strange invention, and on into the back bedroom with its surprising double bed. I had never been in there before, I realised, its hedgy and apple tree privacy. And my grandfather there, in his last days or hours, his face blank initially, then suddenly smiling, Suddenly, knowing me, beyond caring about long hair, maybe, full of love, the powers vanishing out of his veins, out of everything, deserting his cherished self, but this victorious moment at least 
left balancing in the aftermath, left resonating, left a permanent boon really, his precious smile of pleasure, clear as sunlight. My father used to tell a story that when Papa Barry's father was dying, he did go back down to Cork. My great-grandfather, who was poor all his life and worked as a fuller in a carpet factory, gave his son as his inheritance a pair of working boots, which were under the bed in a paper bag. Only a little used, he said. Two years later, when I left Trinity, I had my contentious hair cut off and I sold it to a wig maker in Dunleary, who said it was high quality stuff, even suitable for a woman's wig, and it would last forever. Somewhere in the world, my hair is still walking around. In life, Papa Barry had looked after his two pairs of leather shoes, very nice shoes, not boots, with such precision and care that they not only lasted him a lifetime, as he had prophesied, but outlived him. When my sister and I went to fetch the paintings he had left us after his death, there they were, the two pairs of shining shoes outside his bedroom door, patiently waiting for him to come back out. When I looked closely at them, they were a little scumbled and old, but when I stood back from them, yes, they were perfect, the exact principle of art he had taught me as a child. The painter works close in, but what he is doing should be seen from six feet away. That's why he was always walking away from his easel, walking away and walking back with his serious face, his painting hand as sure and steady as metal, and if not, then he had a stick to steady it against the sized cardboard or the drawing paper. And faraway mountains in a picture, the ones furthest away were always blue. I was to remember that, the sky might be every colour, it might well be blue in part, but the mountains furthest away were always blue. He wore a brushed trilby which he lifted to ladies coming out of the shops in adjacent Donnybrook and wanted the whole country to be speaking Irish as the efforts of his generation deserved. He taught drawing to ungrateful pupils in the technical college in Ringsend. He paid rent all his life, and even when my father offered to buy his house for him, he didn't want the bother of it. In the summer, he wore a neat straw hat in the garden. He made an Australian bull roarer for me because he had seen it described in a book. He was, to me, a poem, somehow intimately bound up with his apple trees that only gave apples every second year, his roses, his nasturtiums that he grew to conceal a little midden, and the spiders in the back wall that was high because it bordered on a sombre monastery. Here he and I stood betimes while he gently tipped the webs with a stick so that the huge spiders would come out to thrill us, thinking we were flies. He was a small man in stature with something of a pot belly, bravely shown in a lovely self-portrait in charcoal of himself at his easel, now hanging in my own sitting room. With his first wife, Maud, a shadowy drawing on the wall behind him, a drawing of a drawing. I don't know where it leaves me, but these memories are certainly a comfort. Did he have to kill during the rising, during the Civil War?
with all the universe-wide passion of a child, I loved him. It strikes me that it was maybe not asking pertinent things that helped me make me a writer. You ask and answer yourself later in the presence of these ghosts as a creature of the fog. My other grandfather, the one I shared the bed with, my mother's father, whom we called Mare Papa as a childish version of Mary's Papa, Mary being my mother's sister, a famous singer and harpist in her day, was altogether a different kettle of Irish fish. His father, old Pat, had been leader of a dance band in Sligo, Pat O'Hara's orchestra that served the dance halls thereabouts, but he was also a tailor in the Sligo Lunatic Asylum. Both this great-grandfather and my grandfather were painfully aware of some real or imagined fall in social stature, and my grandfather laboured to put this right, serving first a boy of 16 as a radio operator in the British Merchant Navy in the last few months of the First World War, then taking up work as an engineering officer in the British Foreign Service, building bridges across Africa, but also, I suppose, burning his own. In the Second World War, he rose to major in the Royal Engineers, mostly in the dangerous task of bomb disposal. All these occupations returned to him a sense of social position, but also, of course, alienated him effectively from the main current of Irish experience after independence. To my other grandfather, he would have had all the edgy glamour of a traitor. A brave man, though, diffusing those bombs. He said he used to sit on the bombs when he was drawing out the fuse, as it fell to the officer to do, so that if it went up, he would be killed immediately and not be left maimed. Well, I loved them both, these epical grandfathers, though they generated more fog between them than an Irish coast. And I remember an odd moment when the Sligo grandfather, always scandalous, as he had been a terrible and destructive drinker, though now sober, had come to fetch me from visiting the revolutionary grandfather, never touched a drop in his life. And I looked back out through the reverse slanting rear window of the Ford Anglia and saw these two men at the little iron gate, talking briefly, unusually, and for a short, shining moment in the lost sunlight of an Irish day, shaking hands with sudden cordiality, which pleased me obscurely. These two men, both my grandfathers died, both my grandmothers died young, and I never knew them, were in their different ways what you might term positively charged. Though there was a touch of something eating away at them both, and though both had their oddnesses and their troubles, even so they seemed to me to have been on the side of life and fully living and expressing somehow wordlessly a humble gratitude arising from that. I think it is fair and sad to say that my father was negatively charged, at least for me, and even my mother, though she had all the appearance and behaviour of a live wire or a cut wire thrashing about after a storm, having been torn from its proper place. My mother was therefore as perilous ultimately as you might expect such a ruptured thing to be. But she was also vivid and highly present, which as a child I found an enchantment. His more or less Sartrean nihilism and her, can I respectfully call it, hecticality, 
generated a lot of fog, certainly, but this isn't to say I didn't love them. When I was a child, I was their small ambassador and praised them, as it were, to strangers, foe and friend alike. I thought at least I knew them with that forensic instinct of a child that allows us to suspect that all our proper research is done from age two to ten. But if I knew certain aspects of them, the ones visible to me, of which I entirely approved, the ten-year-old more than willing to give them the palm of emperor and empress, the fact is, I didn't know them, I mistook them, and they didn't know themselves to a tragic degree, and if they did, hid what they knew from us, and just as tragically from themselves. Their narratives were menaced by a foggy disarray. But it is better to be a child of a positively charged person, is my suspicion. Maybe like the earthly poles, they switch about, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, or are different to different people. My mother was much loved in her profession. Like Donald McCann, if you had wired her up from that wild thrashing wire, you might have lit a city from her. But positive or negative, does it come to the same thing? What is known, what is not known, starts to merge into the one mystery and has no helpful X and Y. Dark matter that we know is there only because there is no other explanation for what is visually missing. The glories of my father. My father published a book of poems in the 50s with Dolman Press, setting his own lines in type as was the necessity of a nascent press. Thomas Kinslow was a fellow poet, John Montague later. The publisher of Dolman, Liam Miller, turned down a young Seamus Heaney, the story goes, which apparently is both true and untrue, like much of human history. In 1969, my father, aged 49, published a thin volume called Wonderfully in Dante's Wood, which Cyril Connolly, in almost his last act as a living person, praised very briefly in The Observer. My father's heroes were E. E. Cummings, from whom he possessed a letter, an answer to a fan letter he had sent, all in lower case, and Joyce and Beckett, but not Singer O'Casey, who were part of my mother's world in the theatre, which my father was not so comfortable with. He would go and see her in plays, but I am not sure he was ever at his ease doing that. She would always show that other powerful public side to her, the part of her that was so admired by other actors, and I suspect her show of such great power unnerved him. In the 70s, on our continuing journeys into town, when I was by then attending Trinity College, he would tell me about the novels he was writing. He felt he had done something hitherto undone in Irish literature, but they were never published. I'm not sure why. I did read one called The Santorini Obsession, which was extremely well written, but involved a lot of sex, which unnerved me, even age 20. I found my father all in all a bit unnerving, as sons do sometimes, but I also found him interesting, appealing, and thought him unusual and impressive, and all in all credited to him at least a quarter of my happy childhood. My mother being another quarter of that in the main with her penchant for fabulous outings to beaches around Dublin, her upplays of humour like the second thoughts of a forest fire, and I loved the milieu where she worked, 
and all the forgotten great actors of her time whom I knew in Abbey Theatre dressing rooms. Angela Newman, a Jewish genius from Smithfield who is still in my mind's eye in all her lovingness and majesty. You will be so handsome when you grow up, she said to me, age six, which was welcome news, even something of a relief. Donald McCann, who was himself very young, but not as young as me. Sinead Cusack, as beautiful a person as you would ever see. And the both of them, Donald and Sinead, beautiful, brilliant. I loved all that, and I was privileged to be unofficially among them after performances in the dusty corridors and dressing rooms of the Queen's Theatre where the Abbey held the line for the moment after the famous fire and while it awaited the rebuilding and opening of the so-called New Abbey, a brutalist monument as it turned out to the dainty old theatre with its huge stage and dire acoustics, the killer of many plays, some of, the, of my own among them. And yes, Joan O'Hara, Siobhan Niara in Irish, or Siobhan Niagara, as Donald called her. I often still miss her. I find myself suddenly, without warning, missing her. The fact of her, the shebang of her personality, posited, positive or negative charge sometimes, doesn't come into it. How quickly I slip up the decades in a mere few sentences, from my mother's work in the Abbey to my own from my ten-year-old self put into the stalls by Lily Shanley, front of house manager, to my, to me, alarming-looking, who is that distressed-looking person, portrait hanging on the stairs that lead up to the glooms of the Abbey Bar. My mother was in rehearsal for the play that was open just before that famous Abbey fire. In 1951, I think it was. She was 21. We might have a moment of sadness for the playwright, since I don't think that play ever did open, but the fire burned a whole tradition along with the old timbers and seats of a music hall theatre that had once housed a morgue in its basement and Dan Lino's famous clog dance on its stage. I think it was Podrick Collum, the poet, who said, going into the plush new modern abbey as it opened grandly, nationally, in 1966, the old theatre was good enough for me and Yeats. I don't know if any great Abbey plays date from the years of exile in the Queen's Theatre in Pierce Street, but the place was certainly stuffed with great actors, my mother among them. I remember Donald McCann telling me that his father, John McCann, almost single-handedly kept the theatre going with his succession of expert potboilers that always drew a crowd as opposed to the different magics of Yeats or Lady Gregory. I like Frank O'Connor's story, or was it Sean of Whelan's or Podrick Collins, of going to see a Yeats play as a young man and finding no one else in the theatre except one gentleman in the front row, gazing up, enraptured, a halo of white hair, Yeats himself. My mother worshipped Yeats, and in particular his plays. When Coca-Cola funded a season of Yeats plays in the 80s, she was delighted and quipped, well, that's gas. By another poetic confluence of Irish things, it was Donald McCann who continued the tradition of supporting carbonated drinks when he did the once famous voiceover for Ballygowan Mineral Water. Ballygowan, no other water. He got the whole strange world of Ireland into four words. Donald, who died with the greatest reputation of any actor in the history of Ireland and not much more than a penny to his name, who didn't even seem to notice 
He was in an antiquated public ward when he got ill, or preferred it that way. When Seamus Heaney would begin to see one of my plays, and I would be lurking nervously in the light box, his head of hair also would look like a halo, a planet, flaring and dying as the lighting design on stage dictated, like light through fog. My father always had a problem with memory. When he was a child, his head was run over by some sort of light vehicle, maybe a bread van, or maybe a delivery boy's bicycle. Either way, he spent a year in the children's hospital in Bagger Street, putting my own sojourn in Harcourt Street Hospital into the Hapney place. I hope he was visited regularly, but in truth, his mother, by some accounts, suffered from her nerves and was somewhat bedbound, so I don't know. After his injury and his recovery, my uncle, his brother, said he was never the same. Some sea change had been effected in him. Some sea fog had passed into his head. He was highly functional in his studies and gained a scholarship in architecture to Italy, above all the other contestants of his year in Ireland. There used to be photographs of him in his fifties garb, away there in Rome, Milan, Siena, his raincoat, his neat beard, his John Lennon glasses before John Lennon. He looked like Lytton Strachey or a young French film star, but he was never the same, apparently. What he had been like before, I don't remember my uncle saying. We were parted by family troubles, permanently, unfixably. My grandfathers died, my parents separated. The old house, the old theatre, as it were, was sold. I met my wife, Ali, in 1985. The twins were born in 92 and Toby in 97. All the old maps and documents of family were being superseded by this new family, one we were constructing ourselves. We weren't accidental invitees. Our task was to protect it, to let our children feel the bounty of safety, and that's what we did. A consequence of my sister's innocent attempts in my life when we were little is I have no real sense of smell, or only a blurred and muted one. When in my work I describe things, when it comes to smells, I have to have recourse to other texts, other evidence, other witnesses with better noses. When a smell does reach me, I am grateful. I am so grateful I am moved and stirred, a particularly pungent rose. The sea served up to me at Kilmichael Point in Wexford, my humanity seems fuller for a moment. Perhaps a sense of smell is an essential part of being human, of judging things, of knowing where you are, your spiritual GPS. Einstein, of course, tells us that we simply do not have the requisite senses to understand time. Its seeming narrative atmosphere, one thing following another, is provably not correct or even real. So news from the past is always current. Nothing wants to be or can be history. This will be bad news for my beloved friend Roy Foster Quandam Carroll, Professor of Irish History at Oxford. But no, there is no such thing as the discreet past. All the riddle of my life, all the depth of my allotment of chaos, my share of happiness, finds its authorship in what used to seem this dis distant past, and since it is not, ever must always be wrestled with. The subtle duality of childhood is the angel we have been given to measure our strength against, to measure our work against.
my father and mother. This is a phrase that should engender a feeling of pride. The Bible tells us so. I have always been inclined to describe them as epic and memorable, a default position. In place of actually going to the trouble of knowing them, I invented them, something, sometimes right in front of their faces. But that is an old text. Who do we need as passionately as we do our parents? I remember reaching out a hand as a little child to touch my father's rich red beard with his architect's board dominating the room and those first episodes of Doctor Who in the person of William Hartnell, a victim of dementia, even as he played the doctor, to scare us to death on the television. My father playing the Doctor Who theme tune on his silver whistle and myself reaching for his beard, reaching out a small hand, fascinated. We do it to love them properly. How helplessly I loved him. He was a man with many hidden things all his life, including his chin, never seen since young manhood as his father's photo of him on the stairs attested. His voice, his presence, his handsomeness, his personal gifts, his singing in falsetto all the way up past St. John's Church to school in Hampstead when I was six and my sister eight. In springtime, in springtime, the only pretty ring time. His unusual clothes, his filed fingernails, that trimmed russet beard. If the love of a child is your true and actual wealth, he was a millionaire. I know my sister felt the same. We worshipped him. We watched him. We waited for him. And we did not know him. We had gone to London so he could take up a post as an architect there. And my mother took those years off to look after us. I remember his curious friends, especially a man called Horace, who had been in a concentration camp as a little boy in, I think, Denmark. And I remember the sweet young lady who rented a room in our flat and whose grand piano almost entirely filled it. All the painters, poets and mad persons of Hampstead in those days, post-war, post many wars really, First World War, Irish War of Independence, Irish Civil War, Spanish Civil War, Second World War, the Shoah, the Cold War still icily rumbling, a fog-bound coast of a generation. It is no wonder their hero was Sartre, that their Bible was being and nothingness, and that maybe for them quite rightly, especially surely for Harris, family and history were dead with atrocious literality, and love too into the bargain, in particular familial love. It is all very understandable, and I may pity them, but woe to you to be a child of such people. Or perhaps not. The universe depends on everything being negatively and positively charged. That is the nature of its unity. Lucretius tells us so. My mother. My instinct is still to speak well of her. I circle back and back, brilliant, beautiful, powerful in her public life, way-giving, compliant, meek in her private, funny, delightfully foul-mouthed, outrageously celebratory of being in the world, mushroom-gatherer, walk-goer, high-talker, perpetual, crazy, girlene, unicorn of a mother, and yet deaf to anything arising from the dark, oblivious. Her own mother and father, May Cowan, and her husband, Major John Charles O'Hara, destructive alcoholics, 
which she had had to survive somehow. She did it by resolving never to know herself, never to see herself, never to ask questions to which the answers might be troubling. Who was born alone, it seemed, lived alone with her, within her own family and definitively died alone with no one at her bedside except a male nurse, myself, her son, far away in Greece on a family holiday. Indeed, everyone else not there, absent, as her soul tried to fly out the window like a panicking robin wandered into the house. As I write this, as I say this, I think, involuntarily, my poor mother, my strange singular mother, an experiment in character from a single mould, secretive, yes, bipolar, according to her last doctor, hardly her fault, whose playing of Lady Bracknell earned the extraordinary response from some long-gone Dublin critic God will never forgive Joan O'Hara for her Lady Bracknell, and nor will I. How she delighted in that. Over the top? Yes, she would say. Over the top and into the bloody fray. Who rose to the challenge of Lorca, Singh, Chekhov, and her out-and-out favoured Yeats in a manner unique in the annals of Irish theatre, unconditionally admired by that same dismantler of reputations, Donald McCann. A woman who went as passionately to swim on White Rock Beach in Dorky as she would sit like a fire on the first day of rehearsal of a play. Who inspired, thrilled and amazed not just audiences, but directors and fellow actors. Who in her last years played the character of the Cromogen Eunice in the RTE soap opera Fair City with strange gusto. An inveterate worker. When she was very ill and I found her in nursing home in Kildare, she said, but Bassie, there's, that's much too far away. I have to be in RTE at 6 a.m. every morning. A worker stopped in her tracks. Did she care? Wild, uncaring was her way, mostly. But she cared about that. Who put a pencil in my hand when I was two weeks old and bid me write. We shouldn't go home to our parents, even metaphorically, and give them any type of hell because old hells are neighbours to old heavens. The child knows broken or unbroken, knows nothing, and yet he has seen everything. He has been a witness with his own eyes. Beside my bed in Hampstead, I carved out a hole in the plaster as if I was trying to get away. But you can't get away when you are a child. You don't have the legs for it, and you don't know the train times. The child sees only points of light, bravely takes his bearing from them, and knows nothing about all the dark matter around them. The child is not the father of anything. His compass is just his foggy heart. What are writers made of? Imponderable ocean-deep flotsam and wreckage. A jam jar of fog. A bell jar needed to glimpse anything. A shaken heart. A shocked face. A deviated septum. Out of these things we write or try to write and snore, snore to beat the band. So maybe I must give thanks finally. A difficult legacy is still a gift. I have seen my father rarely in the last 30 years. In 2008, he caught me off guard on holiday with my wife and children on the Isle of Paros. We were just sitting down to lunch and he was there on the phone suddenly, without thinking, Longing to see him, I said I would come up to visit him in his house above Parakea, the capital of the island. 
My eldest son, Merlin, by then 16, said he would come with me. You go up the wild mountain road and park at the old monastery and walk down the marble way, adored country, thyme scenting the path. I could smell that. Where was the mulberry tree whose dark fruit the hedgehogs used to eat noisily in the Greek dark? Thirty years before I had spent the summer in the house with the builders. There was the piece of ancient marble set into the lintel of the door that I had bought for two thousand drachmas and a bottle of whiskey. After all the years of my absence, the house had reversed back towards decay, the dovecot edging towards ruin, the guest rooms empty and unpainted. When I had last seen it in 1983, it had had all the spank and glow of a finished restoration. Nearly 30 years, I suddenly realised, had passed. Einstein, Einstein, come to my rescue. Tell me again that time passing is an illusion. As we came in the door, he was sitting at the kitchen table and looking up his Greek dictionary, and I asked him what word he sought. He said the word for traitor. He said it quietly, calmly, his beautiful face composed. He was in a dispute with his neighbour over the question of a road and trying to compose a letter in Greek. He needed to run the road across part of her land. She had agreed, but now she was thinking twice. She wrote that she could not divide her late father's land. It was too painful. But my father needed the road because at the moment it was a long walk from a neighbouring house along a little path fretted with red butterflies and yellow broom and his ankles were weak. Other than that, he said, with justifiable satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with me. Traitor, our very Irish word. He was 78 that year. I was 53. He took an instant liking to my son. He delighted in him. We talked about nothing, the most perilous topic of conversation. The grandfather gave the grandson an old Panama hat as we were going, because he was worried about my son going around in the heat without a covering. I thought, here is a coda to something, a precarious end, a moment with mercy in it for everyone in the room. I fear the fog I have tried to describe can never clear, except briefly. The door opens onto clear country, it closes again, and when the smoke does clear, it seems a desirable moment, but at the same time, a difficult one. Stark truths stand there monumentally in the cleared ground where you thought there was nothing or not that. And I must admit one stares balefully at them betimes, regretfully. Could it all have been otherwise? We are talking about things that even clear vision can't unravel. Nothing can be done with the truth, maybe, or these old truths. My present family is such a different beast. There is clarity, simplicity, love. Fiction sudden, certainly wants ambiguity, things glinting and glimpsed, possible reversals and redemptions, deep fogs moving across erased landscapes with their bursts of sudden sunlight and its quick removal. Fiction likes the fog more than anything, it seems to me, out of, which, out of which faces 
emerge suddenly. Perhaps real truth comes through the battered eyes of fiction. The fog is ultimately beneficial, beneficent, acutely illuminating with its darknesses and erasures. It is the distillation, the subtle whiskey of truth. And I have gone on writing, only realising little by little that I know nothing about those lost figures or the true meaning of any of the accidentals of their life. I write to balance the pendulum more outrageously, to still it. Perhaps to have known everything in those early years, to have seen everything, would have meant I could never be a writer. As a child, I was a connoisseur of happiness when it struck. Only difficult sums, tricky calculus, can get you to the moon and back. There is an arena of experience mysteriously allotted us. The specifics are nearly irrelevant. What counts is your common sense of survival and your occasional exultation. It's what true sentences are made of. The fog doesn't matter as much as I thought. It is a pictorial addition. What remains is to still the pendulum, but also to recognize you are not the final agency of judgment. And when there is happiness in the consoling present, the ever new present tense, even the writer, especially the writer, has a duty to notice, really to notice, to find yourself clear-eyed in its moment, but also rejoicing, untrammeled by self-consciousness or a cruel maturity, so that the ashes and cinders of old things and memories can be transmuted into a strange currency, a trembling gold, with all the passionate fakery of the alchemist, all the redundant passion of the child.